Open your Bibles to James chapter 5, to a passage that I have been very eager to get to for quite a long time with some fear and trepidation, because it's a passage that I have had so many questions about in my own mind and heart through the years, and even as I've studied it this week, have come up with even more questions. Hopefully, can answer a couple of those uh, for us today. But it is, um, it is confused and confounded and, and left a lot of people with similar kind of questions, not quite sure how to understand it or how to apply it in their life. It's just one of those passages that, that people scratch their head about and, and aren't quite sure how to fit it in. Let me just read the passage for you and uh, see if uh, you have those same kind of reactions. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruits. There are all kinds of questions, at least for me, when I read a passage like that. In fact, I usually begin uh, my week uh, reading through the text and just writing down as many questions as I can that I want to answer during the week as I study a passage. So I just wrote some of these down. He obviously begins this by talking to people who are suffering, but then he immediately mentions the cheerful. Why does he do that? And why does he call them to sing? And who are these sick people? Are these all sick people or just sick people who've already tried to get better by other means? And why does he want them to call on the elders? Why don't they call on the doctors? Or why don't they have people in the church who have the gift of healing? And why do they need oil? And what's this all about? And what are they supposed to do with it? And why don't we do this today in the church? And what does the prayer of faith in verse 15 have to do with it? And what's the connection in verse 15 with people who've sinned? And why is James connecting those things? Is he suggesting that somehow our sickness is a result of our sin in our life? And, and what does he mean by healing in verse 16? Is that different In verse 15, when he says that the Lord will raise up the so-called sick person, and what's the deal with Elijah and the rain? And why doesn't he talk about Elijah's healing ministry? And when Elijah raised people from the dead, why does he talk about Elijah praying about rain? And I could just go on and on. It doesn't always get that interesting, but... I had lots of questions. I've always had questions, honestly, as I've read this passage. And, and so I want to take some time today to try to give some careful thought and analysis to this. I'm sure you have probably encountered this passage, uh, maybe other passages in your own Bible reading that have caused you to scratch your head. 
But as I've studied this passage this week, I, I have done what I, I know to do, what I've been trained to do, what I train other people to do, which is go back to the basics. Just go back to the basics. Begin with the context. Context, as we say, is king. And ultimately, context is what determines meaning. It determines uh, words, even. When we, when we use the word bored, we don't know what you mean unless you put it in context. Are you talking about a piece of wood? Are you talking about a group of people that run a company? Are you talking about room and board in the sense of, of giving someone some food and a place to sleep at night? What do you mean when you say bored? Well, the context will tell you that. So I want us to just walk carefully this morning through this passage and hopefully as we think about all of this and we think about its context and we think about these words, I think hopefully some of this will become more clear to us. We, were, we, we kind of begin by reminding ourselves of the big picture here that James, as a book, is talking about trials. He's talking about suffering. He started the book, you remember, in verse uh, 2 of chapter 1. If any of you, he says, are in a trial, count it all joy. And he goes on to talk about how even when you're tempted, you need to recognize that in those temptations, those, those times when you're being tested, those Those things are not temptations that are coming from the Lord because the Lord only gives you good things. And throughout the book, he's he's talked to people who are in the midst of difficulties. They're in conflicts. They're in struggles. He told them in chapter 1, verse 19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. You could say that's sort of the summary verse of his counsel to people in all kinds of situations. Just no matter what you're facing, if it's quarrels, if it's fights, if it's a temptation to grumble and complain or whatever it might be, just just take a step back for a moment and just examine yourself, be quick to hear the Word of God, to submit to the Word of God, to do what the Word of God says, be slow to speak and slow to wrath, slow to anger. Well, as we've gotten into chapter 5, he, he has kind of taken us through some of those details, whether it's the reaction of our tongues, uh, how we get into quarrels and fights with other people. And, and in chapter 5, he even gets very specific when it comes to the issue of suffering because he addresses wealthy people who are withholding their, the salaries of their workers or withholding payment. He says, he rebukes them even in verse 6, telling them that because of their greed and their selfishness, he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So, so there's these wealthy and greedy people who are taking advantage of others, and then there are the people who are being taken advantage of, and he says, they're righteous. They're not even, they're not even putting up a resistance. They're just sort of suffering quietly under your greed and selfishness. And beginning in verse 7, he turns his attention to the people who are oppressed. And he tells them to set their hope on justice that will come in the end. Set their hope eschatologically on the coming of the Lord. Not to, in verse 9, don't grumble against brothers and sisters while you're in this life, but as he says in verses 10 and 11, consider the prophets, consider Job, these other people who have suffered in the history of God's, of God's people. 
He even comes back and gives another rebuke to those who would swear and make promises, probably the wealthy who promised to pay or help in some way and failed to keep their word, and he warns them of God's coming judgment for doing that. And all that brings us to verse 13 and to our passage this morning, when, when completely in the flow of all of that of all of that thought and all of that discussion about suffering, he just says, is any among you suffering? Are any of you in this situation right now? Are any of you the ones who have been treated unfairly and have been abused by those who are in power over you in some way? Are any of you the ones who are suffering this kind of neglect or maybe not being paid, not able to feed your family? Maybe you're Maybe you're facing the temptation of wanting to grumble and complain and lash out. Or maybe you've faced broken promises and disappointments from people that you thought were loyal to you or cared about you. Maybe you're just suffering and trying to be patient. Are any of you suffering, he says. And he makes his final appeal, really, as he kind of comes to the close of this book. And he basically is telling you this. This is the big point. Take your burdens to the Lord. Take your burdens to the Lord in prayer. In fact, this becomes a major focus of this entire section. It is what joins all of these things together because he mentions prayer in one way or another in every verse from verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. It's all really about prayer and suffering. It's all about how you are to take your burdens and your cares to the Lord. And as we get into this passage and we find James talking about prayer and the role of prayer and all the variety of ways that we're to use it in our life, whether it's our own prayers or the prayers of elders in our church or the prayers of the church itself, I think James is really wanting us to see that in times of sorrow, in times of suffering, we have so many places that we can turn for support through prayer. And prayer is a powerful means through which the Lord will work, through which He'll come to our aid, through which He will help us. And so we might say James is pointing us to these resources or giving us places we can turn in times of sorrow. Five, as a matter of fact, I think he points out for us here, five resources you and I need to remember in times of sorrow. Five resources to remember in times of sorrow. The first one comes to us in verse 13. And it's basically what James is telling us in the first half of that verse. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So if you are under assault, if you are facing deprivation, if you're wrestling with disappointments or someone has sinned against you through their speech or their actions and brought all kinds of pain and brokenness into your life, If you're suffering the loss of a loved one and the loneliness that comes with that or you're having to watch a loved one suffer and you feel helpless and you can't step in to relieve their pain, if you're suffering even physically or financially or any kind of trial, persecution, I mean, the the category is intentionally broad. It's just all suffering because James gives us, I think, a comprehensive answer. It's all suffering. Job says that man is born to suffering like the sparks 
fly upward. And it doesn't matter what your suffering is. The answer is the same. Go to the Lord. Cast your care on Him. As Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 5, cast your care on Him. He cares for you. Peter, by the way, quoting from David in Psalm 55, when David said that, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. David said that, by the way, when when he says in Psalm 55 that one of his own dear friends had turned their back on David, had betrayed David. So he was suffering here under the the pain and the disappointment in relational terms. And he turned his heart to the Lord. And Peter gives that counsel and James gives that counsel. In the midst of all your suffering, you have to believe that God cares and that you can cast your care, all of your despair and discontent and discouragement, cast it on Him. Or as James says, pray. Let the suffering believer understand the Lord's care and let him pray. Let him believe that the Lord hears your prayers. Let him believe that the Lord will answer your prayers. Let him believe that the Lord understands your plight. He feels your pain. That he himself suffered and therefore serves as a high priest. Hebrews 4 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Same, the same concept, the same counsel. If you are suffering, if you find yourself where you are in some sort of painful situation, go to the throne of grace. You'll find help. He goes on, Hebrews 5, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That's what He did. He prayed. He did this, the writer of Hebrews says, to the one who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. So this is James' starting point. This is his basic counsel. The suffering should pray. They shouldn't neglect this vital, critical, fundamental resource that the Lord has given to you. Don't, Don't turn first and foremost to your friends to cry on a shoulder, to give you some words of sympathy. Turn to the Lord. But there's a second reminder, a second resource that he wants to, uh, us to have in mind as we are facing suffering, I believe. And that is also in verse 13, that the cheerful or the encouraged should sing. So the suffering should pray and the cheerful should sing. He says there in verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. A word for cheerful here, euthymeo. Euthymeo. It's a word that speaks particularly of having your heart refreshed in the midst of a trial. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is twice in the book of Acts, in Acts 27, when Paul was on a ship that had been thrown into a storm and was getting ready to crash 
into the rocks and basically break apart. The crew had been fighting the storm for three days and three nights. They had become so desperate, they threw everything overboard to lighten the ship to hopefully keep it uh, high enough in the water from being grounded. And then, to their dismay, none of that worked. And now here they were without food, without rations. They were hungry, they were starving, and they were about to be crashed against the rocks. And Luke says, they abandoned all hope of being saved. They abandoned all hope of being saved. At that point in Acts 27, verse 22... Paul stands up and he addresses the crew and he says to them, Men, take courage in your heart. Same word, euthymeo. Take courage in your heart. He says it just a couple of verses later. Take heart, it's translated in the ESV. A, a few verses later, it used the noun form and says that they were all encouraged and took some nourishment before their, before their eventual breaking up of their ship. Similar word even in, uh, a, a, in Acts 24 when the word, the adverbial form of the word is used to speak about Paul who had been unjustly accused and illegally jailed, had been held in prison for a couple of weeks, and then finally was brought before the governor Uh, for an opportunity to state his case and give his defense. And we're told that Paul was encouraged to be able to state his case. So this is a word that's always used in the New Testament to talk about people who are in the midst of trial, but for whatever reason, they found themselves with a glimmer of hope, a sense of hope, some ray of sunshine that they were holding on to. And James says the same thing. If you're one of those people who are, at any given moment, encouraged. If you are taking heart, then sing, he says. Sing. If the Lord has refreshed your heart, maybe you've spent some time in prayer, maybe you've been comforted by the Lord by reminders of His promises, maybe you've been spending time in the Word of God and you've been reminded of His goodness, maybe the Lord has brought you to a place where you remember all of His mercies in your life, then don't bottle all that stuff up. Let it out through song, he's saying. Like Paul and Barnabas when they were locked up in a prison in Philippi. And we were told that they were praying and they were singing from their jail cell. And Luke even takes note that while this happened, the other prisoners began to listen. They were listening in. And that's one of the big reasons, I think, why God wants you to do this. He wants you to give testimony to the people who are around you, to your spouse, to your family, to your friends, to your co-workers. He wants you to give testimony to other people of your hope in the Lord, to remind them of the goodness of the Lord, of the joy of the Lord, he understands that these songs that, uh, that we sing, they encapsulate so many tremendous truths, so many great, wonderful reminders of God's care and God's peace and God's promises. These songs encapsulate those. And by the way, James, probably the first book written in the New Testament, written barely 10 years after the church had been founded, 
probably long before anyone had taken time to write any Christian songs, or maybe there might have been just a handful, but most of what these readers would have been familiar with would have been the Old Testament Psalms. That, that's what they would have probably been singing. These are the very things which capture the truths of God's deliverance and God's faithfulness and God's goodness and His abundant care. And so he says, let that stuff come out of you when, you when you're reminded of those things. And even if it's not to speak to other people around you, there's a tremendous beneficial and restorative force in your own life and in your own soul. We remind ourselves of truths, these precious truths when we sing and we're encouraged in our hearts. So, the simple message is, if you're suffering, remember the resource of prayer. And if you have a moment in your trial and suffering where the Lord refreshes your heart, give expression to it by singing. But there's a third resource to remember when you're suffering, and that in verse 14 and 15 is that when you are weary, you should call for the elders. When you are weary, call for the elders. And this really takes us to the heart of some of the difficulties of this passage. Most of them, I think, arising simply out of translations. Because the key words in this section are, in verse 14, the word sick. And again, in verse 15, a different Greek word, but also translated sick. And even all the way down in verse 16, the word for, for heal, as in healing diseases. And most of our Bibles translate the words this way, giving you the impression that this is unambiguously speaking to people who have physical illness. But I just want to tell you, I don't think it's quite that unambiguous. In fact, the word for sick in verse 15, asteneo, is the Greek word. I have to apologize. We're going to spend some time talking a lot about Greek words this morning because it's important in this passage. But this word, asteneo, is used 38 times in the New Testament. 21 very clearly refer to physical sickness. But the other 17 do not. They refer to spiritual weakness, mental weakness, a general weakness in your inner person. And when you expand beyond the scope of the New Testament and you actually look at the Greek Bible as a whole, that is to say the Greek Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, you find that the word itself is used far less to speak about physical illness and far more to speak about just generally being feeble. In fact, in the Old Testament, the primary usage is those people who stumble. Jeremiah 6.21 speaks about people who stumble over stumbling blocks. Or Malachi 2.8, those who stumble in their attempts to follow God. Or Hosea 4.4, God will cause the people and their prophets to stumble over their own words. But then the word's also used to speak about a general weakness of spirit. Psalm 106, those who are bowed down in their hearts. Psalm 108, those who are weak in their knees, as it's translated. 
Even Samson uses this word to to tell others that if he were to cut his hair, he would be weak like other men. It's used to speak about David whenever David was in a battle with Saul. And the text says that David was growing stronger and stronger and Saul was growing weaker and weaker. Same word. So these aren't references to physical illness. They're just references to weakness. And given the fact that that this was the dominant meaning of the word, that it just basically has this idea of feeling uh, weak or poor or powerless or helpless or in some cases tired and insignificant. And given the fact that James would not have been reading primarily the New Testament because it didn't exist, he would have been reading the Old Testament, that this is probably the, the idea that was dominant in his mind. The same could be said for the second word, which is also translated in verse 15 as sick. The word is kamno or kamno. It's used just a few times in the New Testament, but every other time, or each other time, I should say, it's always referencing weariness and fatigue. Hebrews 12.3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Revelation 2.3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. In the book of Maccabees, which would have been sort of the similar time frame to James, it's used to speak of people who were, on one hand, exhausted in battle, or the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, which is another contemporaneous work, speaks about someone who is exhausted from harvesting. And so over and over and over again, when you look at the usage of these words, you find out that it is not so cut and dried as to always refer to physical sickness. In fact, the dominant usage when you look at sometimes even in the New Testament or outside the New Testament, it's not physical sickness. In fact, the only place in Scripture where the word komno is translated sickness is in James. So, so I think it's legitimate to ask at least, would the idea of general spiritual weariness be more appropriate in a context of suffering rather than very narrow focus on sickness. But perhaps people translate it sickness because down in verse 16 there is the word healed. The word is yaomai. It certainly refers at times to physical healing. But again, there are a number of references that don't have to do with physical healing. They have to do with spiritual restoration. Matthew 13, 15, this people's heart has grown dull. With their eyes, they can barely see. With their eyes, they have closed. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them or restore them. He's not talking about physical healing there. He's talking about spiritual restoration. He's talking about having them have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears and spiritual hearts that can understand the ways of the Lord. It's used about 25 times in the New Testament, and certainly the majority of them refer to physical healing, but not all of them. 
And again, if you broaden that out beyond the New Testament and look at Greek as a whole, look at Greek Old Testament and all of that, what you find is that the general idea in the Old Testament was restoration. It was rebuilding. It was, in some cases, loosening things that were too tightened, things like belts and things like ropes. It was just bringing general relief to people. But I think for me, as I studied it this week, the thing that was most compelling is that this whole idea of healing in verse 16 really isn't even directly related to the sickness. Look at it in verse 16. What's he talking about? He's talking about people who have sinned. He's talking about people who are confessing their sins. He says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, so that you might be healed. This has nothing to do with elders coming and laying their hands on anybody or pouring oil over them or any of that stuff. The idea of healing has more to do with the restoration from sinfulness rather than the restoration from sickness. People make an indirect connection, but the direct connection in Scripture, the direct connection in the verse, I should say, is to the sinfulness. So as we piece all this stuff together, at least as I piece all this stuff together, and recognize, first of all, that the entire context has been focused on people who generally are just suffering. And when I piece together that the words for sickness that are translated sickness here really have a much broader definition to just talk about people who are weary and and lowly and tired and fatigued, and that the word healing here really has more to do with restoring and relieving than it does to any kind of physical properties. I am persuaded that James has not suddenly shifted his topic to move away from general spiritual suffering to talk about specific physical sickness. I think we ought to translate these words the way they're translated most other places in the Old Testament and even other places in the New Testament. We ought to translate them as weariness. And so in verse 14, it is, is anyone among you not sick, but are they just weak? Are they just weary? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, your weariness might partially be because you've got some sort of physical ailment going along the way and it's just trying your faith or it might be some other reason. But the reason you're calling on the elders is not because they are specialized in some sort of skill with ill people. If you are sick, you ought to go see a physician. Or in the early 40s, I would even say that if you were in the church and you were sick, you were probably better off to hunt after someone who had the gift of healing because every indication is that the gift of healing was still active in the church in these days. But James doesn't give any of that advice. He doesn't tell you to call on the doctors and he doesn't tell you to call on the healers. He tells you to call on the elders. And why is that? Because the elders are the ones who are, we might say, especially qualified to deal with spiritual weariness. They're the ones who are especially qualified to deal with people who are just weighed down and burdened from temptation and trial. The reason you call the elders rather than the physicians and the healers is because this is their area of responsibility. 
By the way, you'll notice that James doesn't tell you to call on the elder. He calls you to call on the elders, plural, because God has equipped or wants every church to be equipped, not just with one single pastor, one single guy who's the spiritual leader, but He wants every church to have multiple elders, multiple spiritual leaders. And so you call on them, or perhaps, you know, you call on one of them that you know or are particularly close to, and you find yourself in a place of spiritual fatigue and weakness. And what do they do? Well, James says, first of all, they pray for you. They pray for you, or they lift up prayers for you. They pray for you on the spot. They begin to pray for you regularly. And here again, you see the emphasis of the passage. James is once again reminding you that you have a tremendously untapped resource. In some cases, it's your own prayer. As you're suffering, you need to lift up your heart to the Lord. In some cases, it might be songs of praise that you need to be singing and reminding yourself of precious truths. But in this case, it is soliciting the prayers of others. And the message is clear. You need to take better advantage of this resource. The Lord's given prayers a resource to help you in time of need. He's given you elders for whom the primary responsibility or one of the primary responsibilities of their ministry is prayer. You remember Acts chapter 6, the apostles sort of set the tone here when they were They were so busy with sort of logistical matters, they asked the church to appoint deacons within the church. Why? So that they could focus, Acts 6-4 says, on the ministry of prayer and of the Word. So God gives you these spiritual leaders as a resource, and they care for your souls, and they'll give an account for your souls, and they want to come alongside of you. And so ask them. Call on your elders to pray for you when you're in a time of particular struggle or weakness or just general fatigue, he says. And secondly, James says, as they pray, they ought to be anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what's this all about? What is this about? A lot of confusion here as well. I think, again, because we sometimes are looking at it through the eyes of translation but, but this word has basically been explained three different ways, you might say. Maybe we could even narrow it down to two different ways. The first would be medicinally. That is to say, people suggest that James wants the elders to apply some sort of medical treatment to you. And in these days, the best medical treatment they would have had at their disposal would have been olive oil. Most people who propose this view would actually cite the example in Luke chapter 10 where the good Samaritan found a man in a ditch who had been beaten and robbed and wounded and he went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine on the man. And they would cite this as a medicinal use of oil and suggesting the elders are doing the same thing here. Well, there's a problem with that. First of all, there's very little evidence to suggest that the ancients thought of oil as having medicinal value. You can do the research yourself. You can go out there and read their works and try to find anywhere where they are speaking, either in their their medical works or in their general works, you'd have a hard time finding anywhere where they actually speak of oil as a healing 
kind of solution. They certainly thought of it as something that soothed, dried, and sometimes even burnt skin, but that was about it. So, so if there's an application to a sick person, it's a pretty limited application, really. It would deal with maybe some sort of topical treatment, but certainly nothing to do with internal weaknesses, organic weaknesses, respiratory weaknesses, coronary weaknesses, or whatever it might be, bones and joints. None of that stuff really would be in play. Secondly, the problem with that connection with Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan, is that the words aren't even the same. Oil's mentioned, but James uses a much more technical word for anoint. In, in Luke chapter 10, we read that, that he just poured oil over the guy and poured wine with it, maybe perhaps trying to make the skin more supple or something like that, but there was no technical language of anointing. And it's because of this technical language that some people, therefore, believe that this is religious. It's not medicinal at all. It is a religious kind of anointing. But that runs into problems because there are different words for anointing in the Greek. First of all, there's the word creo, which is never used in the literal sense in the New Testament, although it is used in the Old Testament of, of literal anointing, but it's used to people who are consecrated, set apart, priests who were set apart for service in the temple and those kinds of things. It's often used in the New Testament to speak about Jesus, who we're told God had anointed, or He was the anointed one, that He was the one who was specifically designated by God. He was, we might say, the Christ, which is another form of the word. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior. But the word that James uses here is a completely different word than all of that. Pouring oil, uh, this sort of religious consecration. He uses the word alepho, which is used every other time in the New Testament we might say of a cosmetic kind of a sense. It's oil that was rubbed on the body for the sake of beautification. It's actually the word that was used when Mary and Martha were going to the tomb of Jesus to anoint His body with oil. Or it's used in places like Matthew 6 when Jesus is talking to people who are fasting and intentionally disfiguring their faces in order to draw attention to how much they're suffering in their fast, and Jesus rebukes them and says, rather, you should anoint your head with oil and wash your face. Or in Luke chapter 7, a woman comes into a room when Jesus was eating dinner and begins to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair and then anoint his feet with oil or excuse me with ointment Jesus responds by the way to the host who is named Simon and Jesus tells him look when I entered the house you did not offer me oil for my head to anoint me but this woman has not ceased to anoint my feet with ointment later on Mary and Martha the sisters host Jesus in their home, and Mary kind of reenacts this same thing, anointing Jesus' feet with oil, and we're told that the fragrance filled 
the whole house. So this is basically all of the uses in the New Testament. Every one of them, every one of them we might say is cosmetic or fragrant at the best. When you look into the Old Testament, on some occasions, a few occasions, this word has a religious a connotation like anointing a priest, but again, the dominant use is cosmetic. David rising up and anointing his face with oil or the use of fragrant uh, aromas that were in oil form, but you never ever see it used medicinally and rarely see it used sacredly. It's almost always, almost always cosmetically. So it doesn't seem like James is interested in elders administering medicine. Doctors do that. And he's not really interested in some sort of religious ceremonial use. That's how the Roman Catholics have interpreted this verse. And they've come up with the idea of what they call extreme unction or last rites. When they go and they dab a little oil on someone who's on their deathbed for the forgiveness of sins. All of that, I think, confuses the issue here. James is very specific with his wording. And he seems to have in mind something much more common and generic. He seems to be thinking of anointing someone, we might say cosmetically, by the same way you would anoint someone when they came over to your house and joined you for dinner, at least culturally. This was the ancient tradition in this day, a general blessing that you would give to somebody when they, when they were maybe an honored guest. It was a way to communicate blessing. If you fasted, Jesus says you anoint yourself in a way to communicate to others that you're in a blessed state of mind. If you have a dead body, you anoint it with oil as a symbol of blessing. If you are a guest, you, uh, your head is anointed with oil as a sign of blessing. And if someone comes to the elders for prayer... James says they should anoint the person in the name of the Lord as a symbol and a sign of blessing. I suppose you could still do that today, but it probably wouldn't communicate the same thing. It's probably a little bit like washing feet, where we don't have the same sort of dusty roads or modes of travel as they had in the ancient day. But in the ancient day, when you visited someone's house, they would offer to wash your feet and your sandals and your shoes would come off and this would be a blessing to you. We don't do that today in our own context, our own climate, our own culture. In the same way, we don't. We don't go around anointing people cosmetically with oil. But I think the idea is that when you come to your elders, you are fatigued, you are weighed down, you go and you ask for prayer, and they want to send you away blessed in some way. They want to be able to show you in very practical, outward expressions. Maybe it's a meal. Maybe it's meeting a practical need in your life. Maybe they want to send you cards and greetings with words of love and encouragement, but they want some sort of outward, practical expression of their love for you. And I think the idea is that by letting your elders know of your struggles, it gives them the opportunity to demonstrate their love and their care in very practical, visible ways that they may not be able to do if they were unaware of your needs. I know as an elder, I have through the years 
heard from time to time of people who had allowed some sort of resentment or bitterness to build up in their hearts against their elders or against the leaders of the church or whatever because they had been going through a particularly hard time a difficult time. They were struggling in some relationship or maybe battling something physically. They were struggling with their parenting or their marriage or their job or whatever. And they kind of come to a point where they become bitter or complaining that no one came alongside of them in that struggle. And it always gives me a sense of sadness because I never heard of the struggle. I wasn't aware. I didn't know about it. They never shared it with me. They never shared it that I'm aware of with other elders. And somehow they, they expected that uh, we would know, even though we were never told. I, I know the elders of this church. I know the elders of Faith Community Church. And they faithfully, faithfully pray for people. We regularly pray for the people of this church. We love to show practical expressions of support and love. They do it directly. They pray individually for people. They organize people in the church to pray. They organize people in the church to make practical visits to the hospital or various homes or to bring meals or to do all kinds of things. And I think James is saying you need to call on your elders. It's a tremendous resource for you in a time of suffering that you may not be taking advantage of. And these are the men that the Lord has given to you and they want to pray for you and they want to show you some practical blessing. They want to do something to show you expressions of love that can be incredible encouragement to you in times of struggle. A fourth resource that we need to remember in times of suffering. First of all, if you're suffering, you should pray. Second of all, if you're encouraged, you should sing. If you're weary, you need to call on your elders. And then James says, if you're sinning, you need to confess. If you're sinning, you need to confess. There in verse 16. You, the, the resource, if your suffering is internal, the weight of your conscience and your guilt, and you just cannot seem to escape it, it might be because there's an issue that you need to deal with in your heart. He says in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, or really the one who's weary. Comno is the word there. He'll save the one who's weary, as we've said. And so the prayer of faith is saving, not in the eternal sense, not in the Roman Catholic sense of forgiving your sins, not in some sacramental sense, but this is a, a sense of relief. It will bring about relief in your life. And he says the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Now the confession, or I'm sorry, the restoration at this point, the healing as it's translated in some cases, has nothing to do with this oil. And really at this point has seemingly nothing to do with even the prayer of these elders. It has everything to do with you turning your heart to the Lord and offering up a prayer of faith and getting your heart set on God where it has probably been distracted away from. And James realizing that in the process of doing that, you might realize 
that actually there's a sin in your life. There's maybe multiple sins in your life. It might be a part of the relief that the Lord brings in your life. You've been suffering because you've been under His disciplining hand. And so you begin to pray and you even have the elders pray and they come alongside of you and all of that brings out issues of sin in your life. And without getting too complicated because our time is short, James says you need to confess that. You don't just bottle all that stuff up. Again, this is not talking about confessing to a priest. It's not talking about going into some sort of little booth. It's not even talking about just randomly confessing your sins to anybody who will listen. There are some people who have convinced themselves that the key to their spiritual health and maybe the key to the overall authenticity and health of a church is for everyone to just sort of wring out of their heart all of the dirt and darkness that they can find and spill it out in front of other people, a small group or one-on-one or whatever it might be. I don't think that is particularly helpful. It's not helpful for you, and it's certainly not helpful to the person who has to listen to all of that stuff, describing all your temptations and sins and all of their gory details. None of that, I don't think, is what James has in mind. But just as he's alluded to several times throughout this letter, I think he is getting at the same thing here. Let me just say what I think is in James' mind. He's talking about confessing to people whom you have sinned against directly. Or as we often summarize, we simply say it this way, the circle of confession extends as far as the circle of offense. Your circle of confession extends as far as the circle of offense. Those people who have been offended by your sin... Those people who have been hurt by your sin, those are the people that you need to confess to. You don't need to be going out there and and sort of um, blasting everywhere all of the filth and dirt of your life. That's not edifying for anyone. Take that to the Lord. But to the extent that your life and your words and your actions and all that stuff have have offended people, have drugged them into sin or whatever it might be, you need to confess that stuff. And what do you see is you see that when you begin to do that, when you begin to confess, you'll see the Lord working in your life. You'll see Him working in their life. You'll see your spiritual life, which uh, had, at that point maybe had been hindered. You'll see all the internal wrangling and turmoil that you've been going through because of your own guilt and shame. God lifts all those things. I wish we had time to go back and look at David's own confessions in the Old Testament when he talked about how his very bones were aching, how his body was hurting as he tried to bottle up his sins. James says, look, if you recognize sins in your life against someone else, one of the sources of relief in your suffering is just go to them. Go to them. Go to your friend. Go to your spouse. Go to your co-worker. Go to your classmate, whoever it might be, and humble yourself and confess. 
So the suffering should pray, the cheerful should sing, the weary should call for their elders, the sinners should confess, and then finally in verses 16 through 18, the congregation should pray for one another. The congregation should pray for one another. James says it there at the end of verse 16, pray for one another that you might be restored, that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working, he says. So it's not just the elders who are praying. We should all be praying because prayer is a powerful thing. And James immediately reminds us by citing the example of Elijah. And as I said, he had so many things to choose from. He could have talked about Elijah praying for the widow's son who had died. And how Elijah laid his body on top of that young man and prayed for him. And the Lord used that prayer to lift up that that guy who had suffered whatever he suffered and had fallen ill and had died. He could have used that as his example. But he's not really concerned about physical illness here. What he's talking about is people who are suffering. What he's talking about is people who are being treated unfairly. And so he goes right to the example of Elijah confronting the wickedness and injustice of Ahab and Jezebel. And he goes to them, those wicked rulers, and he confronts them, and he prays according to the Lord's instruction, and he prays, and the Lord shuts up the heaven for three and a half years to put the heat and the pressure on those Wicked leaders. The Lord confronts them and humbles them. And then after the Lord has used that time, He once again gives instruction to Elijah. Elijah prays and the rain comes. Three years, three and a half years later, He brings relief to the people of Israel. What's His point? His point is this. Prayer is used by the Lord. It's powerful. We ought to be using it. We ought to be using it for the aid and the benefit of our brothers and sisters who are going through trial. It's a particularly powerful thing in the life of someone living godly. James says that the prayers of a righteous person are particularly efficacious. You might need to be praying, but you might need to be praying prayers of confession and repentance. That needs to be the focus of your prayer because you're not living your life in a godly way. But if you're following the Lord and you are pursuing Him and you're being faithful every day, the Lord has presented you a tremendous opportunity and a calling. Pray for one another. Lift up the burdens of your brothers and sisters. And the Lord is working through the body of Christ. He is working powerfully. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, He is working powerfully through those prayers. Just as much power as Elijah. Well, so many resources, the Lord has by no means left us abandoned. So many ways that you can respond to sorrow. So many pathways you can turn to that all lead you back to Him. Prayers, songs, your elders, confession of sin, and the body of Christ. Take advantage when you're bowed down. 
Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're so grateful for these reminders. These are important truths, sometimes wrapped in the mystery of the original language and the text and the translation. But Lord, we, we just pray for you to be our teacher and our guide today. Help us to understand all the rich resources that you give to us in times of sorrow. Help us to remember those things. Help us to hear, really, the dominant message from this passage about prayer. That the suffering should pray and praise and call for their brothers and sisters to support them. Lord, it's a rebuke to us who haven't been as prayerful as we need to be, haven't been as responsive to the needs of our brothers. Help us to understand the role that we play as a church, as prayer warriors, alongside of upholding and encouraging our brothers. Let us be a blessing to them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.